John chapter 1, starting from verse 35. The next day, John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus, and he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He borne him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Think I'm on? Yep. Excellent. The, uh, this morning we're continuing the, the series that I think you're, you've been doing, which is kind of uh, windows into who Jesus is, primarily from the Gospels. And this morning we've got this passage from the opening moves in John's account of Jesus. And like almost all of the accounts you will read in the four different Gospels, it seeks to do two things simultaneously for us. On the one hand, it seeks to sketch and draw a picture of who Jesus is. That's its primary kind of goal, to to help us to understand who Jesus is, because it's written for people like you and I who can't do what the disciples here do. They can't go and actually hang out with Jesus. And so this account is written by eyewitnesses, that select aspects of who Jesus is to enable us to know him, to come into relationship with him, despite the fact that he's returned to heaven. And so it's crafted in that sense to not just tell us Jesus' shopping list or kind of how he did his laundry or whatever else, like all the minutia, but rather to select off the important things so that you can actually understand him and come into a relationship with him. But the second thing it does is it also designs to enable us to understand how to respond correctly to Jesus and often to warn us against bad responses to Jesus. And as you go through the Gospels, you'll see that all four accounts seek to do both of these things. They seek to show you who Jesus is and they also seek to encourage you to respond correctly from Jesus and discourage you from responding poorly to him. They don't seek to manipulate you or take your choice away from you. It's not that they try and kind of put their fingers on the scale. 
It's just that they put pressure on you. They help you understand what the right way and wrong way is, and they put pressure on you to decide well. But they leave the decision in your hands. Different parts of the Gospels will focus more on one than the other. But all of them do both. Because all of them want to proclaim Jesus, but all of them understand that in proclaiming Jesus, we have to respond to it. And the passage that we have this morning focuses a bit more on the second than the first. It draws and sketches the picture of Jesus for us here as John's Gospel begins, but it particularly zeroes in on the account of these first followers of Jesus as concrete examples of the kind of language that the rest of the Bible uses when it talks about faith and repentance and love and the rest, that these here are examples of what that looks like in concrete terms with actual people that encountered Jesus. And so that's where we're going this morning. So let's pray, ask for God's help as we do so. Father in heaven, we ask that this morning as we hear your word here and as we reflect upon it together, that your spirit would breathe upon us, that your spirit would breathe upon the words I say and make them words that are true to scripture and that are honouring and true to the Lord Jesus, that your spirit would breathe upon my brothers and sisters and myself to open our hearts to this word, that you would enlarge our vision of who Jesus is, that we would see what the pathway of following Jesus looks like and does not look like, and that you would give us the strength and the desire to step out on that path. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Because it's kind of one of the opening moves in John's Gospel, I can do something here that we don't often do when we are jumping around like this and doing sort of portions of Scripture. I can actually give you the backstory. Uh, the further you go through a book, the longer it takes to do the backstory as to how you got there. So at some point you just give up and just say, we'll just kind of take it from here and just kind of look at the passage. But here, it's so close to the beginning, I can actually sketch it in without blowing the sermon out of all proportion. And so, John's Gospel begins quite differently from the other three. John, in a sense, takes the boldest move, opening moves of any of the writers of the Gospels, because he starts by talking about the Logos, the Word, the, the speech of God. And that this speech was simultaneously, from the very beginning and even before the beginning was with God and in some sense was God. In some sense, simultaneously to be distinguished from God, but connected to God, but also identified with God. Something unusual and strange that we don't have any human analogy for. And that through this speech of God, this word of God, everything that exists came into existence. That God didn't just create, but he created through his word, through his speech. And that this speech, this word of God that is God, is life itself and is the light for the world. That where there is any enlightenment, the word of God stands behind it. Where anyone truly lives and doesn't just exist, it comes from the hands of this word. And then John tells us this word didn't just stay with God, being God, but became flesh and lived among human beings. But this word became a human being, a Jewish male, and lived and died as such, genuinely human. And that when he did so, 
He revealed the glory of God to those who met him and were open to see it so that they saw God in a way that God had never been seen before. But later in John's Gospel, Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've actually seen the Father. But not just that. John tells us, grace and truth to its fullness came through Jesus. And Jesus gave those who received him and put their trust in him, who believed in him, the authority to become sons of God. We might say sons and daughters. But in a time and a place where daughters were somewhat second right in terms of their rights, it was greater news that if you were a daughter you could become a son, legally speaking at least. And so that's the language that John uses here. But in our day and age we might say sons and daughters, as the situation has changed a bit. That's the picture that John gives us himself as he starts the Gospel. He offers no proof for it, but he does tell us the stakes that are involved in this picture that he's about to draw of Jesus. That the size of what he's asking for from the reader as to what they are to believe about Jesus before he goes and in the rest of the Gospel give you the evidence for it. And then as he moves, makes his second opening move, he introduces the testimony of a man called John, another John. This is a John who had a big ministry just a couple of years before Jesus. And in just a few words, his ministry is portrayed and described for us in just thumbnail sketch. But who was this John that was ministered before Jesus? Well, he was someone spoken of in the Old Testament. The Old Testament spoke of a voice crying in the wilderness who was preparing the way for the Lord of God, creator of the universe, to come to his people. And that is who John the Baptist was. He was baptising and preaching to prepare God's people for the coming of God himself. And when John sees Jesus, and we know that from the other Gospels, John here is referring to John the Baptist seeing Jesus in the the context of baptising Jesus, John makes this testimony about Jesus, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. That this one, this person that he's baptised or is about to baptise, is the one that will deal with the problem that humanity mucks things up. That humanity is not right. That people do not live fundamentally good lives perfectly. That our ledger is blotted and stained. And it brings with it the judgement of God. But this one will deal with that. More than that, he says, this one is the Son of God. This is the one upon whom God's spirit comes and rests and lives on this one. This one is going to be the one to bring the kingdom of God to earth. This is the one who's going to fulfil the promises God has made to save and to rule his people. And so that's the backdrop. That's the picture we get as we move in now to, to John beginning to help us see the evidence that Jesus is who both he and the other John have said Jesus is. And it begins in a small way in this opening encounters Jesus has privately, not publicly as he does big miraculous signs and great teaching, but just individual conversations with a handful of individuals over two days. We see here sketched out the opening signs that Jesus is who he's been said he is and then what it looks like to respond well to that. And it works in over two days. The day after the impression we're given that John has baptised Jesus, he sees Jesus going past, he sees Jesus walking. And again, in a fairly brief way, he again gives the same testimony. This is the lamb that will take away the sin of the world. 
And for some reason on this day, as opposed to the previous day, the penny drops for two disciples and they start following Jesus. We're not sure whether they needed two bites of the cherry. The first time around, they thought John might have been pulling their leg and they just needed him to say it a second time for them to go, oh, no, John really means it. Oh, we, we better check this out. Or maybe they weren't there the previous day and so this is the first time they've heard it. But either way, two of his disciples at least hear what John is saying about Jesus and they take the first step. They start trailing behind Jesus. Jesus is aware of this and turns and he asks them a probing question. What are you seeking? And it's one of those kind of open-ended questions. You can kind of buy in at every level that you're prepared to do. It's, it's asking you to disclose what is inside and what is important to you. And so you can kind of bring it all out or you can kind of scale back. And it's fairly obvious that they scale back. Rabbi, where are you staying? Because we've got a burning desire to know the hotel room number that you're in. We've left our rabbi that we follow in order to find out your hotel room number. It's a deflection answer. What do you really desire? I desire to know where you're living. Probably not. It's the answer you give as a placeholder when you don't want to say what you actually desire. And you can see that because when finally after they've spent time with Jesus, Simon goes and finds his brother that he works with, the trade with, they spend every day together as brothers. They're both fishermen together. He goes and finds him. He doesn't say, oh, we found out where Jesus lives. He goes and says, no, we've found the person who's the Messiah. We've found the person who is the Christ. We've found the one that the whole Old Testament is pointing towards, God's deliverer and saviour who will change the world. When he's talking to his brother, that's how he describes what it is. And what we have here is a technique that John will use throughout his gospel where often things work on two levels. And if you're not open, if you're not interested, if, if you're not prepared to have a go, you will just bounce off. You'll either go, oh, that was just a bit inane, that was a bit silly, or you can get offended. Uh, you get one picture of one where Jesus tells a religious teacher, you must be born again, and he just can't get the meaning behind the words and goes, are you saying someone has to re-enter their mother? That, that's not physically possible when Jesus was talking about nothing of the sort. Uh, you see it also later in John's Gospel where Jesus says, yes, your forefathers ate the manna that Moses prepared for you in the desert, but I will give you my flesh and blood. And people are offended by that, not picking up the meaning behind the words. The same technique is here in small sense because when Jesus says, what do you desire, and they give that kind of answer, there is a hint of something bigger. When John describes them as following Jesus, there is also a sense in which it's working on two levels. At one level, it's just a physical description of what they're doing. Jesus is walking along and they're just kind of tragging along behind, not quite prepared to go up and talk to him, but, but kind of just hovering until he notices and starts the conversation. But in a bigger sense, they're already doing what it means to be a disciple. In this day and age, to have a rabbi is to have someone who is a teacher and a master. Uh, to be a disciple is to be simultaneously a student 
and a follower, quite literally a follower. Your rabbi would walk down the street and you would walk after him. And as your rabbi did things and interacted with people and, and did his rabbi things, you'd watch him and learn. And from time to time he would pause and turn and say some things to you, either reflecting upon what he just did or just some other things that he thought now might be a good time for. But you physically followed him. You did physically exactly what they're currently doing. Now that, by and large, has disappeared in our day and age, although we still get certain small pockets where it exists. I was reminded of this the last week or two. I've got a relative in hospital I'm, I'm visiting. And uh, you see the Grand Poobar medical specialist uh, walk around the hospital and they have this little collection of junior wannabe Poobar specialists and they quite literally follow the, the more important one, the more senior one because that's, at this stage of their training, how they learn. And he is simultaneously their teacher and their master. He simultaneously instructs them and he simultaneously gives them orders as to what they are to do. And they physically follow him round. And so here, this act that they're doing, at one level is innocent and you can't see anything else. Nonetheless, the description that they're following is loaded. You're meant to see that it's significant what they're doing here they have been, to one degree, begun a relationship with Jesus just by the very act of listening to John the Baptist and beginning to follow Jesus in this way. And so that is the, uh, what we see uh, with them. Simon, uh, Andrew goes to get his brother Simon and his first desire is to see that Simon come, his brother come and meet Jesus. And so he does that, he brings Simon to Jesus. And as soon as Jesus sees Simon, he declares that while his name is Simon, it shall become Peter. And it's not entirely clear what Jesus is doing at that point. Jesus is either looking ahead into the future and saying that while his name is currently Simon, it is going to become Peter in time, or from his own authority, he is here and now changing Simon's name and saying, your name is Simon? No, from now on people are going to call you Peter. I'm changing your name. Now even in our day and age, that's significant. For me to just stand here and just change your name uh, would be somewhat audacious, to put it mildly. But it's even more so in this day and age, because in that day and age, names had a certain power to them, a certain potency. A well-chosen name expressed something about the essence of the person, who they really were. And so whether Jesus is authoritative declaring what is going to happen or whether he's just doing it himself from his own authority, either way he is displaying <clears throat> a unique level of authority here because he's not just changing the label, he's changing the man. Either saying, you are about to be changed and when that change continues, people are going to call you Peter in recognition of the man you've changed into or right here and now, as I speak these words, I am changing you, and you are becoming a Peter. One of those two things is happening, and whichever one it is, it is an audacious level of authority being displayed at this point. Peter's decision to come and meet Jesus is a decisive one because it changes him powerfully, changes him completely, because his name itself is changed. That's day one. 
But John hasn't quite finished with us. He wants to give us two bites of the cherry. And so he gives us the day after that day. He gives us the second day. And the second day reads very similar to the first day. Someone spends some time with Jesus. They go and find someone close to them. And they bring that person to Jesus. And a small conversation occurs between the two. But in a sense, everything is picked up a notch on day two. This time... Jesus doesn't wait for someone else to testify about him and for people to start following him. He goes to Galilee. And in Galilee, he deliberately seeks out a guy called Philip. And when he seeks out Philip, he doesn't just give a general invitation or question about, well, what do you desire? Well, come and see. Rather, he issues a command. You, follow me. The authority is right there off the front foot. It's a deliberately proactive move towards Philip. And Philip does so. He starts to follow Jesus. He clearly spends some time with Jesus. Because again, like like, uh, Andrew, he goes and finds Nathanael. The relationship between Philip and Nathanael is not made clear. Family, friends, work colleagues, the like. Nonetheless, Nathanael is sufficiently important to Philip that he goes and finds him and has almost the exact same conversation that Andrew had with his brother. I've found the person about whom Moses and the prophets speak of. That's a longer way of saying, I've found the Messiah, or found the Christ. If you say to someone in that day and age, I've found the person the entire scriptures are speaking of, you're speaking of God's promised king, God's promised saviour, you're speaking of the Christ or the Messiah. And so it's a fuller version of what we had in, in microcosm from Andrew. But Philip makes the mistake of just mentioning where Jesus comes from. Jesus, son of this guy, yeah, he's from Nazareth. At which point, Nathaniel's hackles go completely up. He's from where? From Nazareth? Mate, nothing good can come from Nazareth. And you've got to get the, the, the weight of this. Galilee wasn't a great postcode to have No one was ever proud of living in Galilee. The rest of Israel looked down on people that lived in Galilee. And so there was no pride in being in Galilee where Philip was. But everyone has to look down on somebody. If you have people looking down on you, you've then got to find someone else to look down on. And so for people in Galilee, where they looked down on people was Nazareth. Galilee might be bad... Nazareth was beyond the pale. If you could possibly avoid it, you never associated yourself with Nazareth. If you're thinking Brisbane context, Galilee is kind of Logan. (laughs) And Nazareth is kind of Anala. It doesn't have a good rep. It's not the place where people go, I'm so excited that I'm moving in there for my first house. It's just not how people kind of think. I saw this when I was over in England. We were living in Oxford when I was doing my doctorate over there. And uh, we were in one of those kind of Galilee, kind of Logan parts of it when we had to move from university housing out to somewhere affordable. We had to move into one of the kind of less salubrious kind of sections. But the next suburb over from where we were was so bad that if you were just a couple of streets into that suburb, you put my suburb onto your kind of or your paperwork, because it was better to be associated with the suburb I was in than that suburb, because that suburb was beyond the pale. And so if you're living on the margins of the suburb, 
you actually put the next suburb onto you even if technically you weren't there. It wasn't great, but it was better than being in the suburb. That's in microcosm what we have here. There is something here about Jesus that is just offensive. And there is just a bit of shame that Philip gets for talking to Nathaniel about Jesus because of this offensiveness associated with Jesus that Philip can't avoid but just has to kind of soak up. And so Nathaniel still comes, he's still open, he still sort of pulls the rope that his friend or family member has given him, but he clearly goes as a sceptic. He clearly goes very differently from Andrew who clearly was kind of excited and, and full of possibility and just thrilled to find that he'd actually found the Christ, but even if he couldn't quite bring himself to say it directly to Jesus. Nathaniel goes more as a sceptic. And yet we find that his scepticism is just blown away in moments. As Jesus sees him coming, he says about him, look, this is a true Israelite, there's nothing false about this guy. Now, it's not entirely clear what Jesus means by that. Different commentators have different theories, but it's either unique to Jesus in this moment or it's a, a form of speech that we've lost. But it clearly is something very positive about Nathaniel. He's clearly making some statement about Nathaniel's character or Nathaniel's stance towards God or, or something internal to Nathaniel that's almost inaccessible to anyone and is clearly de definitively declaring it. And Nathaniel's not interested in being praised for no reason. And so he challenges the description. Just because it's praised, Nathaniel's not interested. He says, why on earth do you think you know me when you've just met me to be able to make that kind of statement? And Jesus says, bud, I don't just know you now. I knew you before Philip went and met you under the fig tree. I saw you reading under the fig tree a display of insight and knowledge into Nathaniel that clearly is beyond the human, that clearly has the whiff of the supernatural about it. And at this point, all of Nathaniel's scepticism just collapses and he makes this declaration, surely you're the king of Israel, you, you must be the son of God. And you kind of expect that, you kind of expect the writer to kind of have sceptic becomes believer. But the kicker is that what Nathaniel just did to Jesus in pushing back, Jesus now does to Nathaniel, he pushes back and says, really, you're going to make that kind of confession when all I've done is tell you that I saw you under a fig tree, mate. You ain't seen nothing yet. There is here just an indication that Jesus sees that Nathaniel's response is disproportional to the evidence. He's making too big a claim for what he's actually seen and tasted at this point in time. His faith is not as grounded as he thinks it is. And so Jesus is just gently pushing back a bit and saying, you need to see more. But nonetheless, Jesus says, what you're going to see is going to blow your mind because you are going to end up seeing the heavens themselves open and the angels of God, God's cosmic servants in the universe ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now that's a big enough claim on its own terms. But if you know your Old Testament, it's an even bigger claim. Because Jesus is most likely referring back to the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. And to an account there where one of Abraham's early descendants, Abraham being given the promises, 
One of his descendants, a guy called Jacob, who God renamed as Israel, which is where you get the idea of the nation of Israel from. They are Israel's descendants, Jacob's descendants. At one point in his life, when he's fleeing from his brother, he sleeps on a location out in the open on, on a rock for a pillow. And he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a ladder going from earth to heaven, connecting earth and heaven, humanity and God. And this ladder has the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And it seems to be, among other things, a a promise from God to to Israel, to Jacob, that what God promised to do through Abraham, to, to bring blessing to Abraham and his followers and his descendants, and then through them to the whole world, that that would now be picked up and carried by Israel and his line. That they would be the ones through whom God and humanity would be reconciled and reconnected. There'd be a, a gateway between heaven and earth. And Jesus now says, that is going to come to fruition finally in me. And you are going to see that, Nathaniel, if you hang around. You will see that the very angels of God, his cosmic servants, they enter heaven and come to earth through me. It is a big claim. Jesus here is making the kind of claim that he'll make later in John 14 and the like when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, that I'm the way, the truth and the life. In a small way, he's making it now. That I am the gateway to God. That if you want to do business with the creator of the universe, you have to come through me. And if God is going to do business with you, he will come through me. I am the contact point between heaven and earth. I am the ladder that connects the two. The term we Christians often use is I'm the mediator. I'm the one that brings the two together and acts as the interface so that God deals with us and we deal with God and there is a space carved out for us to be together. Jesus here makes that statement and says, you stay with me, Nathaniel, and you will see that. And so there is the account over the two days. And I put it to you that it does those two things that I suggest. It draws for us a picture of Jesus. And it draws for us also a picture of what it looks like to respond right to Jesus and encourages us to take it seriously. For Jesus, the picture it draws, I would argue, first and foremost, is a picture of just exceptional authority. At every point in this account... Jesus is the one playing the music and everyone else are the ones dancing. Whether they come to him or he comes to them, he sets the terms of the interaction. At every point, he's the one who takes charge. What are you seeking? Come and see. Your name's Simon? It's going to become Peter. Here's a true Israel. You think you have faith? You're going to see much more than that. You... Follow me. Every statement, every act there is an act of authority. An act of not just normal authority, but of outrageous authority. There is something here that at every point Jesus calls the shots. For the relationship to be established, Jesus is going to be completely the one in charge. And everyone else will orbit around him. Their lives will orbit around Jesus if they're going to follow Jesus far more than just for any normal human rabbi. 
there is here a picture of absolute authority. And at certain points, the authority transcends what is human. Particularly if he's renaming Peter. But certainly when he makes the declaration about Nathaniel being under the fig tree. And even more so when he says, in the end you'll see the heavens themselves open and the angels ascend and descend on me. All of those are declarations that go far beyond human authority. Jesus here, in a small way, is making it effortlessly clear that he has all authority. They are the actions you would expect if he is that word that was with God in the beginning. That if he is the light and life, if he is the one who can give his followers the authority to become children of God, here we see in concrete him acting in ways that reflect and express precisely what you would expect. But he's no tyrant. While he has this kind of authority, he doesn't use it harshly. He he doesn't use it predatorially. At, At every point there is a generosity and a graciousness about him. Before... Nathaniel is under the tree, did he see him? Yes. So then thought, did he probably actually hear the conversation? Probably. Does he have a score to settle then because Nathaniel's had some harsh words to say about him coming from Nazareth? Is he going to put Nathaniel in his place? No. It's not even mentioned. When the two disciples of John address him as rabbi, when they've already been told he's not just a rabbi, but he's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, does Jesus go, excuse me, Um, please treat me with the respect that I deserve. I'm not just a rabbi. I am the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. No. He takes them where they're at and he brings them further. He's not soft He's not kind of wimpy about it. He clearly has the authority, but he uses the authority at every point for what is in their best interests, even up to challenging Nathaniel's premature declaration of faith, that his scepticism has shifted to outrageous belief far too quickly to be stable, rather than Jesus going, oh, fantastic, that's another notch. I've got that one, cool, he's, he's now one of mine. I feel so much better about myself. He goes, no, Nathaniel, you're being a bit too hasty at this point. You've got to slow down. You need to actually see more before you can make that kind of confession. At every point, Jesus uses his being in control for the benefit of those over whom he exercises that control. It is a use of authority we see nowhere else because no one else is like the word who's been made flesh. We see a level of insight into people that clearly transcends what is human. And the thing that's particular about this account that we see here is that unlike elsewhere in the Gospels, where when Jesus does these things, it kind of draws this attention to itself. It's a a signpost to his deity. And so it kind of takes centre stage and he raises someone from the dead or he walks on water or he does something else mind-bending. Here, it's just effortlessly woven into a very human conversation. He just is talking, and as he talks, he just does things that are transhuman. And yet the humanity and the transhumanness just effortlessly blend together. It's not as though he has to kind of change gears or he has to do whatever else. Somehow, the fact that he's both a man and the word 
just work as a single integrated whole in these private conversations that he has. Fully human and generous and yet fully divine in authority beyond what is humanly capable. And the package is just glorious. It is something unique. It's something you can't see anywhere else. And at every point he makes it clear that whatever they have, they can receive more. That there's something about him that is so rich and so full that it cannot be exhausted. Come and see. What is he saying? Just come and spend the afternoon? Well, at the minimum, yes. But isn't he, in a sense, it's an open invitation? When is that going to stop for them? Have they exhausted it when Jesus returns to heaven? Could they have seen even more if he continued for another few years? As they went through their lives when he returned, continuing to learn about him by his spirit, was there more to see? Come and see is this kind of open invitation. He makes it clear when he speaks to Nathaniel, you think you believe now, wait till you see, because there is more to see. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon me. There is this sense he gives even here that there is something inexhaustible about him, that the knowing of him, the learning of him, the being enlarged by him, there is no end date to it. There is no stopping point. It just goes on. His capacity to transform and to enlighten, to give life and to give light, has no end to it. There is always more fullness that can be seen and tasted and experienced. And so the picture we receive here is a picture that, yes, even in the small things that we see already, evidence is being pointed that says, This is not any ordinary religious figure from within scripture or from other religions. This is someone functioning on a different plane. This is someone for whom there is evidence to say that he is the promised Christ. He is the son of God. He is the one on whom the angels of God ascend and descend. He is the one that takes away the sin of the world. Not all the evidence is here in the passage. The gospel of John will go on to sort of fill it out further. But already the first tent pegs are down to say, look, these are not crazy claims, even though they're audacious claims. But the big thing it points for us here is about the right way to respond to Jesus. And you see it sketched in these little tiny sketches of these four or five people. Two followers of John, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel. And certain things that just kind of are there in each case. In each case, clearly, they haven't got the whole thing yet. When Andrew talks to Jesus, he refers to him as rabbi, rather than as even the Lamb of God or the Messiah. Clearly, he's hedging his bets. He sees something, but not everything. And as you go through the Gospels, you see that's certainly the case. Whatever the disciples are seeing here when they refer to him as being the son of God and the king of Israel and the Messiah, they clearly don't get so much. But what they do get, they act upon. And they step forward with it. In the case of someone like Andrew, it seems like he steps forward excitedly. In the case of someone like Nathaniel, he steps forward sceptically. 
It's not that they switch their brains off. It's not that they just kind of put the doubts to one side. It's not that they just kind of switch things over. But they step forward to engage with Jesus and go, there's something here, I need to check this out. And whatever their internal state is as to how they do that, they step forward to check it out. And that, I put it to you, is just basic. If you have some sense at all as to there's something about this Jesus thing, whether you believe it or don't, if you have a sense that there's something odd here, something worth checking into, then you are exactly in the right place. You're doing almost exactly what the guys in the story did. You're taking that step forward to check it out. It doesn't require you to sign off on the dotted line or to enter into a contract or an attempt to enter a contract with God or something like that. It is a more organic thing where you step forward and go, what is this? And let me understand this better, being at least slightly open to it as you do so and not absolutely committed to not believing it at the end. If that's you, then this is the right kind of place for you. And notice that it's very similar to how life is for most of us in this area. One person out of five has Jesus come and directly, without any other intervening person, talk to them and put his hand on them and say, come follow me. The other four, the process starts by someone other than Jesus coming and telling them about Jesus. John tells his disciples, Andrew tells Simon, Philip tells Nathaniel. Now, I'm not saying it's for every four there's one or anything like that. I'm just going, the fact, that the, the fact is that usually in most times and most places, for most people, it's the unusual person who has some kind of direct experience of God, a vision. Some people get that, a vision that comes and says, go and find a Christian and get them to tell you about Jesus. Some people have testified they've had that kind of experience. Or someone has some kind of life crisis and goes, I've got to come to terms on this and goes, I probably should go to church and work this out. That happens for a minority of us. But for the majority of us, the process begins exactly the way it begins here. Someone else tells us about Jesus. And that starts the process. And it's by that means that we then begin to check things out. It's kind of built into the very fabric of how we do church. If Philip was the paradigm, we'd come to church, we might sing some psalms together, and then we'd just all quietly open our Bibles and read on our own. All waiting for that direct word from God, just me and God. And that's part of the Christian life, that we, we do that at home. But when we come together, it's more like what they experience here. Someone else speaks the words of Jesus. To us. Now it's more than just that because hopefully if I'm correct to scripture and the spirit uses what I do it's not just my words but it's God's words and in some sense God is speaking to you but nonetheless the paradigm is very much the paradigm of the others. We receive the word of God from the hands of other human beings which means that there's a natural and right way if you belong to Jesus, if you see that there's something valuable in Jesus, that he is light and life, if you're prepared to go, yes, I'm all in, 
where you do what these guys do, where you go, who are the important people in my life? I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to invite them along. This ritual you have, because you've been doing it now for years, because you did it last time I was here, of, of having people stand up if it's their first time, or have their friend who brought them stand up, is exactly the paradigm here of John chapter 1. That there is this natural, organic thing where, yes, if Jesus matters to you, it matters to you enough to try and help others connect to Jesus as well, to give them the opportunity. The passage is open that there's a cost to that. There is something shameful for Philip to say, I'm following a Messiah who comes from Nazareth, from the worst part of town. That's my Lord. He comes from the wrong postcode. There is something where that is just humiliating to have to say that to your friend Nathaniel or your family member Nathaniel. Even this passage is open to the cost that can come from doing that. That you almost never get honour for doing it. But nonetheless the passage is saying if you're the kind of person that's grasped that Jesus is who he is, that should be a pattern of your life that is just there, that you desire and long for those that you care about to taste and experience what you have experienced encountering Jesus. And so my challenge to you is, if you're not that person, and many of us are not, then ask God to make you more into that person. It's clearly something he wants to do. Rather than just sitting there and feeling guilty that you're not that person, do something useful about it and ask God to change the situation and persevere at asking God to change the situation until the situation changes. And as you ask that prayer, try and do in small baby steps the kinds of things that would go in that kind of direction, whatever that looks like for you. But the passage is indicating that there is this natural flow whereas someone begins to grasp who Jesus is, they realise this is more than just something for them. This is something for those around them as well. And there's a desire to see them be brought to Jesus, to have an opportunity to make this decision as well. And then the last thing with is this. The passage also, I think, indicates to us that the way we begin is the way that we continue. Are you someone who's not sure where you stand with Jesus? Then this is the right place for you because it's a place where Jesus is declared and you get a sense of who Jesus is and what it looks like to respond. Are you someone who's sure of where you stand with Jesus? Then this is still exactly the right place for you for exactly the same reasons. The process of following Jesus is not a contract that you sign off and it's done. It's all organic. It's unfolding. It's something that has no end date to it. The way you begin is the way you continue. They begin by following Jesus and spending time with Jesus and being open to Jesus. How do they continue? By following Jesus and spending time with Jesus and learning from Jesus and being open to that. And then when they've done that, what do they do? They follow Jesus and they spend time with Jesus and they're open to Jesus and they learn from Jesus. How they begin and how they continue and how they go on and then how they go on from there is exactly the same. And it's not always entirely clear at which point the person becomes a child of God. 
at which point their sins are forgiven, at which point they cross from death to life. I think it was that moment I told you when I prayed that prayer. Because that's when I noticed a dramatic change. And those around me noticed a dramatic change. But we could all be wrong. It could have happened before and it could have happened after. That was just the moment when consciously it dropped for me. It's like that with these disciples. Here in this first chapter, we already have Andrew saying, he's the Christ. And you go, wow, right from the get-go they got it. And then you read the Gospels and go, no, they don't got it. These guys are as thick as two planks added to two more planks. They're as thick as four planks because two two planks aren't thick enough to describe how stupid these guys are in the Gospels. They don't get it. And so are they not Christians at that point? Or are they Christians? And it's not entirely clear. You can make arguments both ways. The point is at the end of the process it's clear that they are. Before the process, it's clear they're not. At which point in between it's shifted over, it's not clear, although God knows. But the reason why it's not clear is because the process itself is meant to just keep going. The way you enter is the way you continue. Can you imagine investing time getting to know someone and going, finally, I've got to know this person, now I'm not going to spend any time with them. Now that it's clear that we have a relationship and I know you, I can just tick that off my do list and now I'm not going to spend any time with you. The whole point of spending time with someone and getting to know someone is to spend more time with them and get to know them even better. And it's just like that with God. It's just like that with the Lord Jesus. It is to see your entire life revolve completely more and more around him not in a way that makes you less, but in a way that gives you life. In a way that makes you more. And so the way you get in is exactly the way you continue. What we see here sketched out for us is how you become a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, how you take the first steps towards becoming a Christian, or if you are a Christian, how you keep going. It's exactly the same in all three categories. Are you not one, checking it out? Are you kind of on the borderline and kind of weighing it up? Or already across the line, it's exactly the same action that you take from here. It looks exactly like these guys. You follow Jesus, you're open, and you look for what he reveals of himself to you as you encounter him in the words of scripture. Because you no longer have the opportunity to meet him face to face or flesh to flesh. Scripture is written so that you can have the same encounter with him by the words that they had with him flesh to flesh. And so that to us this morning is the core. Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Christ. He is the one on whom the angels of God ascend and descend, the contact point between heaven and earth. And the way you respond to him wherever you are right now is to take the next step. To follow him, to listen to him, and to be open to what he reveals himself to you, and then to change in light of what he says. It is the underlying fundamental that is there for us at every point in our life with him. 